Hark! It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 48, Nocturne. My name is Paul Abbott, and joining me in the same room are my two uh, co-McBainiacs, Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. Yes, this is us back together for the first time since. Well, the last one we did in person was book 33. So that's 15 episodes ago. And that was Calypso. So that's a long time back. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, well, we're almost in touching distance as well. It's not as though we're in a giant sports hall shouting. No, no. We're, not, we're, not that we'll be shouting because we're clearly not shouting. But. <laughs> we're, we're at a safe but comfortable distance from each other as, yeah, as reasonable human beings should be at this time. But yes, we're back together. I mean, I was looking back on the notes to try and work out which was the last one we did. And I came, I checked the one for heat i think it was possibly which was back in may last year and i had a note in may of last year that said we're in day three billion of lockdown then oh you <laughs> knew all along it's like yeah a billion so, days later it's it's over well, not really <laughs> who's to say well well, yeah. well let's um, we're yeah. on the way the fact that we can get together is something yes, isn't it, it really even is, if yeah. the rest of the lockdown easing might take a little bit longer but yeah the fact that in may last year i felt like it had been forever so <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. now here we are in in June of the following year. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. Feels like a watershed moment. It does. Indeed, it, it does. does. Yes, this is good. So anyway, as usual, you all know where we are. Hark eighty seven podcast on all the social stuff and at gmail dot com. And don't forget to listen to the mini episode I put out last week as I recorded this, as we are recording this even uh, about the story reruns from the January 1997 TV guide, a copy of which I will show to these gentlemen because I know they won't have seen it for the short story reruns. I'm passing that to Steve-O. Obviously, I did this mini episode all about this just to cover it because it's only literally three or four pages. It feels so like like TV timesy slash... The Thompson Directory, remember that thing? <laughs> it is. It's it's quite a strange thing because I, I mentioned on the that podcast mm. that I did that our TV guides are always larger, and that apparently a lot of the American ones for a long time were in this pocketbook format, oh, right, which no, is a very that's strange quite... thing. It makes it almost like it ties into the pulps of, yeah. of the period. Yeah, that's cool. That yeah. Shall I find a television program at random? Go for it. Whoa, is that? Uh... That's what's his face in uh, uh, North and South. Yes, uh, Patrick Swayze, isn't it? Looks like it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, right, we're going to watch an episode of the fiendish, or oh no, the film fiendish plot of Doctor Fu Manchu. Oh wow! <laughs> comedy, and it gets two stars. Is that a Peter Sellers one? That one. Possibly because it's, it seems to be on in the afternoon. Yeah, I think Peter Sellers did a Fu Manchu film during that period when he was just doing anything and being mm. rubbish. Great. So, oh, there you go. Coast to Coast with Bernard Goldberg. Good old Bernie. Yeah. No, I, I no used idea. to like tuning in for, for, for that. <laughs> On a hectic episode of Friends, Ross's insecurity about Rachel's new job and about new guy Mark lead him to desperate measures like sending a barbershop quartet to her office on her first day of work, 7pm. 
why it sounds hilarious. And just think they've just done the Friends reunion <sighs> thing on TV this very week. I think we'll find as we look into like contextual stuff and, and music and things and films in the bonus episode that 1997 really does mark the year that we're, st- we're still in a hangover culturally from sort of 97, late 90s, even now, I think. Yeah. In terms of things, even if it's just genre, genres generally, but a lot of actual stuff. Well, you've got the 23rd Annual People's Choice Awards, Ooh. where you can, you've got a choice of three in various categories. So, um, favourite male musical performer. And I've only heard of one of these. Go on, so, then. Who do you think was the one I might have heard of? We used to wear a big hat. <laughs> uh, Brooks. Correct. <laughs> and the others are Vince Gill. Yeah, okay. Yeah. George Strait. Yeah, they're all big hat wearers. So, are actually, that, that shouldn't have been that good a clue. <laughs> I'm so, not sure which has the biggest hat, but... Uh, Garth well, Brooks was the most... It, though, is it? <laughs> well, Garth Brooks, presumably, was the most international of the big hats. I, I think so, yeah. He, he wore his big hat while flying around on a harness. And... Favourite female musical performer, and I've heard of two of these. Very different types of artist. Is one of them judging by the the male one? I'm going to say one of them's going to be Leanne Rhymes. No, no, oh, good try. One was a bit got, got involved in movies a bit. Uh, Whitney Houston, yeah, Alanis oh, okay. Morissette, and Reba McIntyre. Oh, there, 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 there's there's your your country. All oh, right, there you go. Another. She's she wear a big hat or not? So I, much, I've, I've not seen she, her in a big hat. She has the essence of a big hat. Yeah. New there's, people who wore yeah, big hats. Yeah, big hats yeah. are implied certainly. Yeah. I perhaps shouldn't have given that to Steve. No, no, right. <laughs> 25 <laughs> so, minutes later. Bonus episode just on that, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah well, so... Could have done yeah. a bonus bonus. I'll shut up now. Right, anyway, well, that's that's where reruns is. That's that's. I was very pleased to get that. And, yes, obviously, go back and listen to that if you haven't. But just to bring us up to date contextually, so we missed out 1996 for reasons I'll go into in a minute. But 1996 was an Olympic year. The Nintendo 64 was launched. Dolly the Sheep, the first cloned sheep, happened in 1996. And there was a lovely IRA bomb in the middle of Manchester. Oh, God, yeah. Which my stepdad was in Manchester that day that that happened and was lucky not to get caught in it. Yeah, so. I, was, I was on a bus going into Manchester and, uh, yeah, they, they stopped the traffic and we did see the explosion sort of going up in the distance. Bloody right. hell. Yeah. I don't think you've ever told us that. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I think I was... If, if memory served, I was on my way... Uh, with my uh, mum and my sister to see a version of Greece with uh, Shane Ritchie and Sonia. <laughs> well, you're not making me like you anymore. Aren't you? <laughs> Things I'm not keen on, a list read out by Morgan Brown <laughs> yeah. without meaning to. Anyway, 1997, which is the year that this book comes out. So January, Bill Clinton is sworn in for his second term. 30th of March in the UK, we get our fifth TV channel. <gasps> channel 5 starts. <laughs> starts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a massive fanfare to that. Yeah, yeah it was it, just it, a load of rubbish. Adverts it? with the Spice Girls on, I seem yeah, to singing, recall. Singing, one, two, three, four, five. Oh, yeah. In a hilarious inversion of the Manfred Mann song. Indeed. Quite significant for us. 2nd of May, because we would have all probably just voted in our first election. Did you two? You, yeah, yes. you guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we got Labour into power, or Labour came into power on a landslide across the oh, yeah. UK, which was Tony Blair. Oh, politics. 
Let's steer away from Things you. can only get better. Allegedly. You see images from like then age quite badly somehow, wasn't they? <laughs> yeah. Now when you see films and stuff on telly from that time, and yeah, the peculiarity of just things all of a sudden seemed really old, <laughs> yeah, dated. Absolutely. Uh, what else do we have? We have the 1st of July, the UK gives Hong Kong back to China. 31st of August was the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Very big news stories this year. Yeah. Uh, no, none so big as September, the month in which Paul, Morgan and Stephen moved to Liverpool to go to university. Yes. Very true, yeah. Yeah. 1997, yeah. Terrific. Only a few weeks away from getting to know each other properly and <laughs> becoming friends. Friends for life. Wow. So far, anyway. <laughs> as far as, you know. Uh, 15th of September, www, full stop, Google, dot com is registered by the Google company, which yeah. seems strange because that's obviously, well, it doesn't seem strange, but we didn't really use it very much back then. No. So now it's so universal, it's it's, it's odd to think that it, there was a day that it sort of, it came into being. Yeah. We have a big bank robbery, the Loomis Fargo bank robbery on the 4th of October, second largest cash robbery in the US at the time, 17.3 million. Cripes. A heist committed by someone who worked there by simply sort of sending one of his colleagues home from work early and then just stealing loads of money. Always inside jobs, aren't they? Well, yeah. It's a lot of money, though, that, isn't it? Yeah, and it was in small bills, apparently, as well. I feel like they should possibly have gone for a bit more of a Death Man-style intrigue. Yeah, it's... Yeah. So they got caught. He did the right thing. He didn't do a Death (laughs) Man-style. He didn't make a huge diversion somewhere, thus introducing loads of variables that he couldn't control. (laughs) I'd prefer a Parker-esque team of delinquents with one massive liability <laughs> yeah. who screws everything up and yeah. they don't get away with it. Almost everything's planned perfectly and there's just mm. one thing you... Or a Hot Rock-style thing. Where they have to cannon. Keep, they have to keep building on something that's gone wrong and more <laughs> stupid every time. But anyway, yes, on the 11th of December 1997, the Royal Yacht Britannia is decommissioned. Oh, yeah. So why are we talking about getting a new one now? It's absolutely ludicrous. It's going to be the world's first trade vessel. And um, all these countries around the world missing a trick by having a a boat that's going (laughs) to... Be the the pride of the nation with our our boat and our blue passports. Everyone everyone will be so envious. I, I was reading about that bloody boat last week and I was just thinking, they are insane aren't they there is just no other yeah because I then said my, my, the way my brain thought is why are we not having a Brexit trade hovercraft then yeah absolutely you know? yeah, or helicopter and Liam Fox can go in a helicopter to Guernsey to create yes. we've a... opened new trade routes with Sark yeah it's just absolutely... we're going to open new trade routes with China in about three weeks when we get there in our really slow boat. Yeah. Auditions are being held for the new uh, Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake type <laughs> characters. You, you, you can't make it up, can you? It's just bringing a small quantity of saffron from the Orient. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Right, anyway, well, yeah, there we go. This is what I mean about how 1997 is very much... It's There's a lot of things from there that are hangover now, politically, culturally, yeah. genre-wise... Uh, all sorts of things. But let's move towards McBain stuff now we've had a shout about our mad government. So let me tell you why 
essentially there wasn't a book in 1996 for this. Um, that's not to say stuff wasn't published in 96, and I'll fill you in on that in a second, but if we go to 1995, the good thing for McBain, for Evan Hunter, is that the hoarseness he's had in his voice following his surgery to remove, remove these precancerous lesions has gone. He's had therapy, he's had inspections on his throat, and he's been told it's gone. It's got better, essentially. So that's good. Then in June of 1996, he has another heart attack. Then he has to have angioplasty, a lot more treatment. Manages to get away in September for a holiday with his new partner, Dina Drajishka. Gets back October of 1996, has another heart attack. So most of his year was kind of wiped out, really. And I think he took a massive sort of confidence knock with his writing that so it took a little while in his terms in his eyes anyway to get back on the horse as it were and 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 start writing again the way he wanted to but like i say it's not like he was you know not on the shelves at all in 96 97 i mean he's got all sorts going on i mean separated from mary van he's with dragishka he's looking for a new house in connecticut because you go through divorce negotiations all sorts of stuff happens um, Dina gets a subpoena to find out about her green card status as part of the divorce settlement. So it's all sort of nasty lawyers games going on there. So it's not a, a particularly brilliant period for McBain uh. here. But let's say what he puts out. 1996 sees Privileged Conversation come out, an Evan Hunter novel. 1996 also sees Gladly the Cross-Eyed Bear, a Matthew Hope novel. The short story Running from Legs, <laughs> which is a great title, is published in a Otto Pensler compendium then we get to 97 we have reruns in january of 1997 we have the tiny little thin memoir me and hitch about his time with alfred hitchcock which is a really good book but it's very very short um i think it was only published in the uk as well strangely enough i don't really know why that didn't take in america and then we get nocturne tv wise tv and film no no cinematic releases but we have uh, 1996, we have the Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Ice TV movie thing. Rubbish. <laughs> we have an adaptation of Lady Lady, I Did It in Japan. We have the Heatwave TV movie. Rubbish. And then we have Give the Boys a Great Big Hand and Sadie When She Died, adap- adapted in Japan as well. So there's stuff going on, even though a lot of what's happening to him is in and out of ambulances, sadly. Whew. Right. Yeah. We're well. up to speed. And we can start talking about Nocturne, which is book 48. Publication date, the 15th of May, 1997. Comes out in Warner Books in America in both hardback and paperback. And in the UK, it's Hodder and Stoughton and their paperback imprint, New English Library. Which is a revival of a an imprint that used to be really pulpy. A proper English pulp publisher back from the 50s, 60s and 70s, I think. But Hodder and Stoughton have got it and start using the name for these things. Oh. Right, we better get stuck into this. First question to the panel is, have you read it before, Morgan? I has, yes. Steve-o? Yes. Okay. I think I had as well. I may have blocked it out a little bit when we get into the discussion of the content of it. Um, it's quite a thick book as well, isn't it? It is. It is, with small writing, so... Yeah, yeah, quite lengthy, I thought, yeah. It does feel perhaps a bit like two books smushed together, hmm. really, given the, the plots in it as well. I'll get the dedication out of the way. This is for Rachel and Avram Ben-Avi. 
Rachel Benavi are uh, found straight away on the internet. She's a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst and, quote, unsuccessful model, a moderately successful actress, then she becomes a psychologist and psychoanalyst. Her father was a communist who was called in front of the House on American Activities Committee. Mm-hmm. But he was a yeah, he was a member of the Communist Party and he went to jail for refusing to name names. Mm. Her husband, uh, Avram, had died in who died in two thousand and eight, was a former New York psychologist. Between the two of them, they set up the first counselling service for AIDS patients in the nineteen eighties. So yeah, which is good when you have that sort of holistic approach to those sorts of things. But yeah, they lived in New York. Connecticut and Sarasota, Florida. So, yeah, there's always the uh, Connecticut connection. Yeah, yeah. So that basically everywhere, like they're following him around. So I don't know whether they, you know, they were just friends. Well, I presume they were friends. He may have consulted them about issues to do with psychology and psychoanalysis. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, without going into too much specifics, can I ask then? What are your impressions of this book generally before we get into specifics? I will come to Morgan first on that one. I mean, I, before even before starting to reread it, I did remember... I didn't remember the specifics of what happened in it, but I remembered it being quite sort of dark and horrible. Yes. Um, so that that's definitely the lasting impression that I'd come away with. I couldn't remember the actual plot, but I was like, oh, oh I think this is, a, this is a bit of a nasty one. Yeah. Um, and I definitely, upon rereading it, realised why I had that recollection. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Steve-O? Um, yeah, I, th- I, I, I would agree. That's the... Um... Although the like the the real nasty story is kind of only comes in quite a good chunk of the way through, doesn't it? It's a it's a bit of a straightforward tale for quite a while, isn't it? Regarding the old lady, mm. yeah. Uh, and then it's only after maybe a third of the book, I can't quite remember what, that you've suddenly got like an explosion of other plots that then are all ongoing, and then it becomes quite a complicated, mm. yeah. You know, uh, stories running in parallel, really. There's lots but, of cutting of scenes, isn't there? Yeah, yeah there is, yeah. So, yeah, the, that you know, one of the main crimes is incredibly brutal and yeah. diabolical and must be as bad as anything that happens in the whole canon, but that's, that's not to say I didn't very much enjoy it, actually. No, I, I, um, and I think there's, you know, there's, we, we often talk about them in terms of there's not a lot going on and it's good for it, and then some have a lot going on and they're good for it, and I think this is one of the latter ones, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know we rated one of his highly recently, didn't we? Which had stood out as a bit of an anomaly of a bit of a return to form, and I can't help but think this is kind of up there with some of his best, really. Yeah, I think our highest rated one recently was Tricks. Yeah. That was quite high rated. Kiss yeah. was quite highly rated as well. But this just seems, yeah, it just seems a little bit of a, um, bit of a return to form as somehow. That's how it kind of felt, really. Uh, yeah. With one or two slight reservations here and there, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the crime novels have to be able to discuss horrible things because there are horrible crimes. It's, uh, it's just, yeah, that was the the thing that made the lasting impression on me yeah. from however many years ago it was that I read it. 
Because he he just paints. There's a lot of the like the protagonists in this book, and you know, like uh, uh, perps, as it were, just absolute total horrible idiots, aren't they? Yeah. And they just they just so brain dead to the consequence of their actions. Yeah, it's the the kind of needlessness of it all. Yeah, which the, is the clearly that, what he was must have been yeah. going for, really. But I suppose the book title, you know, if nothing else, kind of suggests a darkness, dark things <laughs> happening at night. You know, most of this book happens at night, doesn't it? The the crimes, the investigation. It's the the nighttime world, as it were, cabbies yeah. and people trying to sleep and yeah, nightclubs yeah, and prostitutes, and, yeah, and drug dealers, and night cafes yeah. and diners and stuff. It, it you know, it's the it's the nighttime world, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, it's, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is difficult subject matter in here. I mean, the sort of content warning for this episode is that we will have to talk about the story, which features a very, very brutal sexual assault um, murder, uh, and then I suppose a more a modern book looking at that stuff would probably be using it as a way of talking about the nature of consent, which is important for sex right. workers, as let alone you know people together in, in other scenarios which this book doesn't really get into but then he's never really ever been that sort of psychology moralizer no. particularly I mean he's moral certainly and he doesn't present this as anything other than an absolutely grotesque brutal crime but it's certainly one of the most graphic crimes mm. I think there's yeah. ever been in any of these books yeah and that's that's quite a hard thing to to digest <laughs> even though it does what 87 precinct books do which is keep you reading it, yeah. And you're ticking over and you're going, but I don't want to be reading this. But then... Well, he, he doesn't even explain the full nature of the crime in the scene, does he? He uses a lot of, like, um, you know, the post-mortem. And, yeah, I seem to remember it's only in that scene, like a few chapters yeah. later, that you you know, you, you get the full understanding of what yeah, actually happened. I think yeah. the scene is a lot of kind of quick cutting around that kind of captures the confusion of uh, and terror of the moment isn't it really yeah. so you don't yeah. necessarily understand fully what's happening as indeed you, you you assume the characters don't either yeah once you really kind of properly realize exactly what has happened it's absolutely horrific and then the other main story which it starts with is perhaps on the the, the other end of the spectrum really and is a very very mysterious and well, I suppose I would be have to give the game away of well, the, you spoilers, know the you know is you know, a bit of a turns out to be a bit of a mercy killing, doesn't it? Or that's how it's kind of yes portrayed, yeah. and so maybe he's trying in some sort of way to show the full you know spectrum. Really, right. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So essentially, we've got two main plots. We have the opening and what you'd call the A plot, probably just because of its positioning in the book of the murder of an old woman who turns out to have been quite a famous concert pianist uh, from Russia. And she's shot, her cat is shot. Yeah, which just seems totally perplexing because she's yeah. a bit of a loner. And, she's an alcoholic. They yeah. can't work out what money she's got or where it is. That leads into a whole string of story with other characters, her family, and a very 87th precinct, almost comedy in a way, type of, of sort of chase for money people double crossing each other yeah. N- not even in an intelligent way you talked about people being dumb in this yeah, book well, that's a lot of people are very stupid in, this yeah, book, yeah, yeah, in yeah, their that's... actions and motivations yeah and then the second plot is we have three 
college students, all called Richard, who are on the town, decide they want to get um, get a load of drugs, they want to get a girl. It turns into a horrible, violent sexual assault and murder. And then that also sort of turns into a funny money chase. Not funny in this case, it, into a chase for money because it's a prostitute who's killed who should have had money to take back to her pimp. It results in some more murders on top of that by these horrible preppy college kids who... I mean, to give him his due, you hate them almost instantly. He writes them (laughs) brilliantly as the most obnoxious sort of people you can ever imagine. And there's but but in both in both crimes, you've got the police investigating and following their chain, in which they follow the murder weapon in one, but they're running parallel or investigation to the characters, aren't they? So. In the uh, the death of the grand lady, uh, the 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 grandma, grand lady, uh, the <laughs> oh, grandmother, the, grand lady. <laughs> the grandmother. It's the granddaughter with her two oppos oh, yeah, it's, 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 who were trying to find this person, uh, and then with the other investigation, it's the pimp trying to find the purse at the same yeah. time as the police are trying to. So yeah, yeah. he's very. Very cleverly put together, yeah. and he does a fair amount of recapping. I found in this because I think he must have thought, yeah, it starts to get a bit confusing. Yeah, thoughtful, <laughs> thoughtful to keep us up to speed, really. Yeah, and of course, what he does as well is he gives a big chunk of the book to Fat Ollie mm-hmm. again. Yeah, who I think already you're starting to see signs of him. I mean, he's not lessening his bigotry, but it's and it is on display here. But he is giving him more cop stuff to do rather than simply being a super bigoted thing for all all the time of it even though you know there's a fantastic line where a jewish taxi driver gets the measure of him instantly <laughs> those little character moments that mcbain can do so well where you understand the taxi driver you understand that more about ollie and the way this guy reacts to him all that sort of stuff is is really really good it's quite funny that's it because it doesn't the taxi driver says something like we had, well, we had relations, and he's pretending it. What you were related? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, there is some interesting, like, um, I suppose, important stuff here. This book, I believe, is the last appearance of Sam Grossman in the series. <gasps> Bloody oh, crikey! So that's you know, some he's someone who's been there since essentially the beginning. And he ain't been in it for a while either, has no, he? No, so... he's not. No, not at all. We get a few other things. We get the a couple of. Stool pigeons we haven't seen for a while. Hey. So we get the cowboy. Yeah, uh, we've not seen him since Tricks, and we get Danny Gimp back, yeah, who we've fantastic. not seen since Lullaby. And uh, yeah, there's perhaps a bit of foreshadowing of uh, Danny Gimp's future in this as well. We will see in a couple of books' time what happens uh, there. What can I remember? What happens well, to him? Don't he's well, wait. You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite hard to talk about this one because I don't want to talk about the the absolute gory details of 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 the the murder of the sex worker but i think what comes through in all of this and, and one of our twitter followers i think matthew sullivan mentioned the procedural aspects in this hmm. are back yeah big yes. style yeah, they they yeah absolutely yeah, yeah definitely yeah, there's a lot of just following the case from from point to point isn't there which is 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 great i, I you kind of miss that sometimes when uh, that's less of the focus yeah, the, the follow the gun is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Because they're just pulling all these people out of bed in the middle of the night and the gun that's in the car and then the car was at the garage and the garage was 
having an engine fit and yeah. then it turns out somebody had a chicken in the <laughs> yeah, back of yeah. it. Yeah, for chicken. some reason there's loads of bird shit all and over the car. And why and therefore they think the chicken's got something to do with the gun and then they find the man who had the chicken. Who, who decided that his, his, his rooster was so important uh, that he had to drive him to the cockfight in a limousine. Yeah, and then... <laughs> And then he met somebody else, and then he <laughs> sold the gun to somebody else who owed money to. It's, yeah, you know, it's such a great, very game. well kind of put together that aspect. And it, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, at the beginning, I was trying to maybe articulate better. It was more of a throwback to some of the earlier ones where mm. it was very much like a. Yeah, um, absolutely, it is, and it, you do have to concentrate to get the thread of of this because at some point as well the stories pivot into each other briefly hmm. um is that around like the cockfight they kind of do well, well a lot of the characters leads... are all in the same bit of that block at the same time aren't they curiously yeah it's i think it's to do with the gambling aspect of it that mm. comes in on mm. both sides of the story i think yeah see so try to recall it now because you know, in the past, I've tried to write a little map of, of how things come out, like draw myself a little diagram or, or map it out. I don't think I could do this here. And I'm sure McBain must have had a, a wall covered in sticky notes and bits of string yeah. and things like that to keep track of this much stuff going on. Yeah. And for it to make sense. Yeah. I don't think there's any particularly over-the-top leaps of logic in this one as well, which is quite good. No, the, the, the most... Yeah, the, 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 maybe the aspect of the investigation that was slightly odd is the way they'd start investigating the the chicken thing so thoroughly. Because, <laughs> I don't know, I just got the feeling when I was reading that, they'd just think, well, there's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> and then they start, their first thought is voodoo as well, isn't yeah, it? I Which I just so, thought, yeah, yeah. surely that'd be like the last thing you would... Uh... But anyway, they, yeah, I don't want to... Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to put a downer on it. But that was the only slightly dubious bit of it that you thought, hmm, really? Um, yeah, yeah. But no, you're that right, aside, yeah. Um, yeah. So what have we got here? I'm looking down my little list of notes of, of bits and pieces from this. There's a lot of references to movies in this, mm-hmm. not least The Birds, as yeah, usual, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Which, given that he wrote that Hitchcock memoir... It came out in '97. It clearly was on his mind mm. again. Not that it ever wasn't, essentially. Yeah, lots of things about how Alfred Hitchcock wrote that movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Funny thing is, I don't think anyone particularly ever really thinks that about no. Hitchcock movies. It's clearly, <laughs> and given that Evan Hunter got his name so big on the birds as well, he got a much bigger credit on that than most writers ever mm. did. <laughs> And people asked him about it all the time as the writer of The Birds. It just seemed funny that his chip on the shoulder carries on. But that was McBain, really. Yeah, uh, what else have we got? Yeah, I like the idea that someone at some point tries to remember the name of the Shawshank Redemption and ends up calling it the Scrimshaw Reduction. Yeah. Scrimshaw's the art of carving it a whalebone, isn't yes, it? Yes, I believe so, yeah. That's an interesting thing. I'm not sure what that film would be, but I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd be intrigued. The scrimshaw reduction, it would be someone who's like got like a, a horn or a whalebone and done a lovely intricate carving on it, but they keep doing it and they keep working on it until they just run out of bone and it just <laughs> crumbles into their and their hands into dust. Sounds like a Robert Ludlum book. <laughs> it does a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> right, what else have we got? Oh, reference to a musical film. So there's a, a section where I think they're with um, Paul Blaney, the uh, mm. coroner, 
and they were trying to remember the name of a film, and no one can remember because someone says two to the heart is the phrase that triggers oh, it. Oh yeah. yeah, they start talking about apocalypse now and all that. Yeah, yeah. And they go and about the- Coppola and he's like Corella and you're like what? Yeah, <laughs> but there's a there's a very uh, good website called Bloody Murder, which is a blog, who years ago was reviewed all these things and suggests that the film they're probably trying to think about is. And I'd never heard of this. It was from 1982, made by Francis Ford Coppola, which is called One One From The Heart. Oh, okay. Which is a musical. And I did not know Coppola had ever made a musical. I've, uh, yeah, there's a whole run of of Coppola films from the 80s that I've not seen, which sound like interesting kind of disasters. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it rings a vague bell, but I don't don't know anything at all about it. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. I wonder if it's a point in Coppola's career where he just people would just give him money by that point. Well, he well he spent forever making Apocalypse Now, which was then a massive hit, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, but I think I'd taken him about ten years to make, hadn't it? Pretty much. I think so. Yeah, um, or, ever since The Godfather, I think pretty much. Uh, but yeah, big hit, lots of money. I've always wanted to make a musical. So yeah, I'll spend. <laughs> Forty million pounds making one. I think quite a lot of that generation of filmmakers kind of came came into the uh, into the eighties high off lots of seventy success and vast amounts of cocaine and then immediately (laughs) um, ran into bother. Yeah, well, certainly I've never heard of of one from the heart. (laughs) It is always funny when we talk about this. We have to remember it is fiction, so the comedy character in this, of course, turns out to kill someone. My, I think probably my favourite bit of this book is the guy who is ringing up all the city authorities to complain Ugh. about taxis honking their horns. Yeah. Which in New York is still technically punishable by a fine of something like $350. Uh, I mean, it was less in the time this book was written, but yes, there was. there is even an app now because of the problem of, of issues with taxis. Not just noise, but you know, failing to pick up a passenger is a... F- an offence that can get you a fine. Hmm. So there's an app now people can report taxi issues with. That's how bad it is in New hmm. York. But obviously back then, this, <laughs> this guy in this just... He's just there and then gone. But it's just another sequence where McBain clearly has trying to call someone on the phone as one of his big issues. <laughs> so he has this guy having to be put on hold to everyone to the point where he goes completely flipped. And just goes out and shoots a taxi driver. It's amazing. I mean, it's the punchline, something like, Maya figured it was justifiable homicide. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's classic McBain comedy character, but it's also clearly McBain who has spent nearly a lifetime writing in opportunities to get annoyed with trying to call people on a phone and getting passed from pillar to post. Yeah. There's quite a few references to city laws and statutes in this book, and I checked on a couple of them, and they tally exactly with New York laws and statutes, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly. Yep. I mean, we get little bits of all sorts of, of things. We get mainly Corella and Hawes investigating, but we also get some Meyer and Kling. We get Hal Willis in there as well. We get a few scenes at home for Corella anyway, with his sons not feeling very well. Not many, though, really. There's no. not really room for it in this book. No, most of it's like the parties surrounding the victim, isn't it? Not necessarily the police. Yeah, not much uh, fat, on, fat on this, really, is it? Uh, no. For a fat book. Mm. Yeah. 
I like that we find out that Ollie Week's partner is called Detective Wilbur Sloat. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's good. I like it. He uses all like stuff that uh, Weeks thinks he's uh, seen on the telly. He's just like... <laughs> yeah, all these phrases he keeps using, and yeah, Fat Ollie's not really impressed by that. Yeah, he's a bit of a, a lone wolf, Fat Ollie, really, isn't he? Yeah, he is. So, yeah, as as awful as he is, he's when he's got an investigation, he's a bit of a dog with a bone, isn't he? And he just goes off on his own and yeah, um, yeah. Hunt, hunts these uh, fellas down. Do we, am I misremembering, or do we encounter another duo of um, homicide cops in this? We do, yes. Uh, uh, in the later part, we do have Monaghan and Monroe. Flattery and... Fahy, fahy and fl- I think no. they've been in before, though, haven't they? No, they haven't. No, I did but check. But he's done similar... I did check, other... but then didn't write no, it down. The, 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 the homicide cops have, have always got... Um... Like illiterate. Is that the word? No. <laughs> they might be. Alliterative. Yeah, alliterative. Yeah. I think these two are uh, uh, sort of both sort of identically thin, aren't they? Whereas yeah. Monaghan and Monroe are kind of more kind of like a Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Yeah, but just like uh, Monaghan and Monroe, Fatley just thinks they're idiots, doesn't yep. he? <laughs> when they're like, think these guys have killed themselves. And he's like, what, he killed him killed him, and then went for a bath <laughs> and drowned in his clothes. <laughs> yeah, the business of the city, you know, somehow has thrown together these these similarly named characters to come and <laughs> cause bother for all sorts of clubs. Yeah, that is good. Uh, there's a reference on page 77 in the editions we've got, which I must uh, point out to... I'm sure everyone's read it anyway. It's about... Well, it's talking about people using names for people. So Richard Cooper moaning about, you know, mm. not liking being called Coop. People taking, you know, the opportunity to just shorten your name or use a name that you don't want to use and of course the name that he uses as an example is you know hey remember me sal only his effing name ain't sal dig so <laughs> once again he's also well that's what happened to him you know if he got so annoyed that if people would call him salvatore or sal he hated it especially after he'd changed his name legally and people would so it's, um, it's weird though i wonder what the richard thing was because he you know he has all three of the main baddies called Richard who then meet another guy in all those scenes who's called Richard just like really odd you wonder if he's got it in for someone called yeah. Richard and yeah. he's just making a point of it yeah. he's just like yeah right I'm going to not only have this guy in this yeah whenever <laughs> you mean four times yes. but it, it also makes for a kind of slightly surreal sort of comedy yeah. which is quite pleasing as well it's, it's almost like a bit of a the kind of thing Chester Himes would do it yeah, or something, isn't it? Yeah, Just like yeah. three three people with an identical name. Yeah, so he can give them the epithets Richard the First, Second, yeah. Third, and then draw parallels to the actual kings of England <laughs> as well. But yeah, they're, they're horrible people. I suppose we should really talk because uh, yeah, about how these things conclude. I think we're the good thing to say is no one gets away with anything in this book and and as regards the the murder of the the sex worker by the 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 three richards and the murder of two other people by them as well you don't see them brought to justice but you do see the point at which ollie weeks turns up at their university their college ready to ask the question yeah. and yeah. they're in the choir aren't they at the time uh, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah whiter than white sort of up there singing in the choir proper varsity footballers and things like that and you just think oh yeah yeah 
Ollie is going to absolutely crucify you. Yeah. And it's a, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, a small price to pay for, for the character, but as a reader, you at least know that they're not going to get away with it. Uh, absolutely demonic crime that they've just done through this sort of weird privilege, I suppose. It, privilege is exactly the, the word I would have used. Yeah, it's, it's they're, they're just come from such a level of privilege that they're totally unaware that anything yeah. they're doing is wrong, really. They're like too sort of white and upper middle class to possibly be bothered with anything as lowly as a, a, the death of a sex worker or or um, just, just a, a drug dealer or anything. Or I've, anything that stands in their way. Or any, yeah, really, yeah. Which, you know, I, I, again, nothing much really changes. Um, yeah, and I suppose also it's a good way of saying, you know, the, the ills of drugs aren't just confined to, you know, the black population of the city yeah. as well. This is this goes everywhere, you know, the things that can, can happen. Yeah, so that's that's that. And then we have the main plot, which is, of course, the the concert pianist and her death. And I mean, we've had chickens involved in, in this story. We've also got fish oil on mm-hmm. a mink. Yeah. Sounds like we're going bonkers, which is one of the ways of... Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the ways that they finally put together the pieces of this. That's quite a sad tale, isn't it, really? It is, yeah. Like yeah, a... it's heartbreaking, really. Yeah. And then the, the like the side spin-off story of that of the money that um, she left her granddaughter uh, that, uh, her extremely un- ungrateful unpleasant granddaughter in a bizarre thruple yes uh, <laughs> and her, uh, her yeah her oppos who decide to steal a bit I always thought it was a really daft thing to do because if they're going to steal it they should have stolen all of it and Imagine. claimed that there was nothing in the just just leaving a bit and then sort of keeping chiming in with well it's still nothing to be sniffed at yeah yeah <laughs> so essentially we've got yeah so you've got the granddaughter who's like a, a, a nightclub pianist singer isn't she and she's got these two fellas who are kind of her bodyguards kind of her lovers kind of her servants so she sends them off to go and find this money that's been that some mysterious man has sent her this this information about going to a lockup, but it's a hundred thousand dollars, and they, you know, <laughs> either rather than doing what Steve-O says, which is I, you know, just take it all, or Give, or split it in a more reasonable way. Yeah, they just they they, they take ninety five thousand. <laughs> yeah, they're just really silly, aren't they? Yeah, uh, but even they get their comeuppance, don't they? Yes, they do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so no one particularly benefits. None of the horrible people particularly benefit in that uh, scenario either. No. Which is good. It certainly yeah. is. Now, I must ask, because I notice we all have the same copy, and obviously we'll talk about this in the bonus episode. Mm-hmm. Right, page six in your copies. Are you gonna, I, I seem to remember, I can't remember that now, but there's a few errors in these books. Oh, they, yes. this is the most... Stu- yeah. So we've got... Um, yeah, there should be a picture there, shouldn't there? A paperback edition oh, where yeah. the bottom of a page ends in, or the, in the phrase, the label red, colon, and then there's just a blank space. So I was looking at that going... Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember and given that, that we love McBain illustrations and insets in the book and there is stuff like done in like handwriting and stuff elsewhere in the book it's weird that they've missed out what is it's the it should have been a record label yeah as in a label on a record not an organization yeah of like a, a hmv victor record of the 1922 suite paul hindemith 
piano Svetlana Djalovic with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh. So I'm just showing the chaps. That's what it should have been there. Oh, all right, very nice. Which I had to find then by going online to have a look at the preview of the current <laughs> Kindle edition, which at least has retained it there. So, yeah. Yeah, I seem to remember there's another like t- type in there. When Richard Cooper's going on about like the three college guys... I'm sure he says I can't wait to take these four guys to so and so and like <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. Well there could well be. I didn't spot that one, but you might be right. Maybe. So anyway, yeah. I think um just before we get into our summing up for this, I would like to mention again our, our friend Matthew Sullivan, he, he highlighted a lovely line in this book, or an interesting line anyway, perhaps a bit bittersweet, from two three five, where we've got Lieutenant Burns and he's saying He's, Lieutenant Burns is sort of thinking about his squad and about the different people in it. Oh, yeah, I remember that bit, yeah. Different people in it, and he says, you know, about Kling hooking up with Sharon, and he says, Burns wished him the best, but it remained to be seen. Next chapter, he thought. Life is always full of next chapters, some of them never written. Which is quite heartfelt, especially given you think that this is a man writing it who's just had two heart attacks and everything else that's gone on before that as well. So that's that's a quite a poignant line in there, really, and Definitely. it's yeah, it's an interesting one to to highlight. Mm. Reminds me a bit with Burns though, because like uh, Parker yet again is the guy that tells them, even though he's totally useless, <laughs> says, "Oh yeah, you need to go to the Lincoln Street Fish Market," yes. which is what leads them to their <laughs> ultimate, you know, the solution, which he's done a few times of late, actually. <laughs> yeah, he's sort of become a. A savant character, really, <laughs> Almost, in, in that yeah. he just sort of he, he does nothing. He is useless, but then just has this chances spot. across the yeah. yeah, just randomly knows the place they need to go to. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange one, but uh, yeah, he doesn't play much part in the book, really, no, Parker. But uh, yeah, he has his he has his moment as <laughs> usual. Okay, so <laughs> summing up, then. I'm going to go to Steve-O first. Oh, yeah. I don't think you've sent us Kenneth. So. I'm not. I will show you uh, yeah, Kenneth. Yeah, I might need a visual... So, uh, a one visual. thing I can do here is Ooh, I can literally grasp them the pad. Up and down. Up and down. Up and down. Uh, yeah, I'm just refreshing my memory there. Yeah, well, I, I think I summed it up right at the beginning, so um, I don't want to repeat myself. But, um, yeah, lots going on. Very interesting Nighttimey world. Nighttimey world, indeed. Um, yeah, a bit of bittersweetness to it, isn't there? There's a very sad story and then a very awful story, but a lot of characters. So, yeah, in terms of scoring, I think I'm going to go re- pretty high on this because I, I did. I like to go with my impression when I finished it. So I think I'll go maybe uh, 85. 85 police yeah, shields I from th- Steve. Yeah, I think, yeah. Okay, and I'll come to Morgan. Okay, dog. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I kind of agree with Steve. Really, I did. Although um, I did mainly remember the, the sort of ugliness of that one particular aspect of the book. There is actually a lot to enjoy there, and it's nice to see the uh, procedural elements coming back in. Uh, so I'm not going to go quite as high, but I think I'll go with a good solid eighty police shields. 80, granted by Morgan Brown. Okay. Yeah, it's a funny one. I'll tell you why. Because left to my own devices, I probably would have scored this lower. But the conversation we've had and thinking about it in that sense makes me appreciate a bit more the 
the cleverness of the of the the writing, the cleverness of the book. I'm, I think I wouldn't go again as high as either of you really, because I did find it that the the sexual assault stuff in it very very hard uh-huh. to read. It, which, but then you start thinking, you know, it is fiction. It is a crime world. It's supposed to be real, and sadly, this sort of stuff does happen. But it's rare that he's so graphic, and that's what I found quite shocking. It, it is genuinely shocking, but that, that's, I suppose that's what he was aiming for, I yeah, guess. Yes, and this um, isn't this isn't the nineteen fifties or the nineteen sixties anymore. This is you know the the late nineties we're getting into now, and it's this stuff is becoming more prevalent in in all forms of media. I, I guess while people are reading James Elroy novels, there's probably um, mm, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, unlike some of his eighties ones, where he, he's got into like. You know, like dwelt on some of this stuff. It's fairly over. He just kind of spells out what's happening in that fairly chaotic scene, doesn't he? When they're all drunk and taking all these drugs and all that chaos is just unfolding, mm. and then that's the kind of end of it, isn't he? He doesn't dwell yeah, on it, it or he doesn't make it gratuitous. I don't think. Yeah. Which is, slightly being guilty of doing, I think, in some yeah, of the eighties ones, at least. It's, it's and he leaves out the most significant thing until the uh, pathologist doesn't he as well yeah uh, yeah and, and yeah he doesn't sexual sexualize it in a titillating way at all no in, in this one so that's that's good yeah you I know, mean that's, that's that, that'll essential. be pre- pretty unforgivable wouldn't it yes completely. although I'm sure there are definitely crime writers who have done that in the past. Yeah, okay. Well, bearing that in mind, then, my score has, has slightly gone upwards from my initial feeling, so I'm going to give it 78, please, mm. Shields, which gives it a sum of 81 overall. Ooh. Which, well, yes. let's let's have a little look at the uh, contemporary reviews to, to, to finish off and see what whether they agree with us. And we start with Marilyn Stasio in the New York Times. Ed McBain taught the American police procedural its best song and dance steps, but just in case anybody thought the 47 earlier novels in his 87th Precinct series were a fluke, he's gone and revitalised the routine with Nocturne. She describes it as a melancholy crime study. Mm. Yeah, The stories behind these bluesy vignettes of one night's life and sudden death in the city can be sad, sordid, bizarre or disgusting, but they are never not real. So she liked it. Yeah, Sam Leith in The Observer wrote something that is a bit of a weird review and doesn't. I can't really work out what he <laughs> means from it. Yeah, no, can't figure that one out. Um, the Kirkus Review from 15th of April, 97, is... And very often when I look at the ones on the, the Kirkus Review, they're a bit critical, but this one actually is... Um, says his 47th tour of Isler is exuberant as his best. It's not his 47th, it's his 48th. <laughs> but they're very, very um, uh, keen on it. There's quite a long article about it in the Irish Times from the 21st of July, 1997, which is a bit odd. It's, not, it's sort of just a talk through the book, really. But then it does say, McBain's character drawing is first class. You just keep referring to New York. It's not New York. <laughs> It is amazing that McBain has managed to keep such a long-running series so alive and fresh. One chooses to forget that in normal time sequences, detectives would be long past retirement age. And in fact, there's stuff in the book about that again, about time not meaning anything in the 87th Precinct. So yes, generally, very, very positive there. Positive or just a bit baffling to read, (laughs) as so often they are. 
So well, like, just, just taking a step back and thinking he's using the same characters and he's in his 49th outing in the same city and still managing to... 48th out. 48th. 47th. It's quite astonishing, really, isn't it? Oh, it totally uh, is, yeah. yeah. It's, it's why it's baffling to me that he isn't better known yeah. now, in general terms, or more lauded for, for what, he, what he'd done. And, and this just goes to, to show that we're here. We're not actually... It doesn't feel like we're scraping the barrel with these no, stories. No, no. You know, he's, he's had some moments which we thought yeah. being reasonably not up to his best in, in the last uh, ten yeah. years or so. But, yeah. To uh, frequently bounce back like yeah, he there, does. Yeah, there's quite... still regular peaks. Regular peaks, yes, definitely. Well, actually, we will be moving on to his 49th entry uh, very soon in the next episode that we do. And that is, of course, from 1999, The Big Bad City. Ooh, which I, I can't remember if I have read or not. I'm Ooh. fairly certain I have not. Ooh, well, there we go then. Right, so... Join us for our bonus episode where we'll talk you through probably some quite uninspiring cover designs, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, there's a pitch for you. And, <laughs> and perhaps chat about some uh, stuff from 1997. But until then, I'm going to say goodbye, as is Steve-O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. 